Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. turning a couple things. Um, As I mentioned last week, uh, if you are involved in taking up the offering um, ever, please uh, stay after today. Want to have just a very brief meeting with you, probably only two to three minutes. Uh, We're just going to tweak a couple things in the way we do it. So we're just going to go over it. So if you'll uh, hang out afterwards. Um, Also, here's here's what's coming up in the in the next weeks to come. So today uh, we start chapter 12 of Romans. I'm excited to do so. Then we're going to take two weeks and uh, meditate on the incarnation uh, for some Christmas messages there. When we're done with that, um, it's it's been our custom, our practice uh, since almost when we began as a church that at the start of every new year, um, we return to the chief end of all things, the purpose, the meaning of it all, the glory of God and what that says to us. However, um, I'm not sure we could improve upon uh, the end of chapter 11 and how it is preached the glory of God and then this application from it in chapter 12. And so my intention is to work through that is and fits in nicely with our New Year series. Probably at least one other sermon. I've got one in my head that I will uh, preach as well. But that's what's coming in some weeks ahead. Um, for this, we are considering the first two verses of chapter 12. So please read along with me. And uh, then we'll pray. So verse one. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you will come and give us help now. Please send your spirit to quicken, to empower, to shine light, to give help. And Lord, I I ask that you will do this work of stirring within us reflection on your mercies, that you'll build gratitude And out of gratitude, Lord, that you will then produce things to come out of our lives. You'll bring fruit. Lord, I pray that that we um, will worship, obey, live holy, and serve your glory. Uh, Lord, as a response to what you have done and the gratitude you stir from it. And so, God, we, we pray you will have this effect. Help us as we study these truths. And I pray, God, that in studying the truths, you'll then bring the change to our lives. And so everything that needs to happen in order for this to be a, a time where 
fruit grows and it's profitable and beneficial, please bring that. Uh, We pray for our children in the next room uh, as they consider your word. Uh, We ask, oh God, that it will bear fruit in them. Please bless this, protect the service, send your spirit, help us to pay attention. Everything that needs to happen, please give grace. Have mercy on me, oh God, to speak, speak truth in a way that's helpful, filter out what's not, and help us as we receive your word. Glorify your name, we pray. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Well, last week um, we said, as we considered the end of chapter 11, doctrine produces doxology, which may sound like just kind of a complex way of saying that when we learn of the grace of God that he's given in the gospel, Uh, The the grace, the mercy of God that's been given in our salvation, in that message of Christ, the gospel, um, it ignites within us worship. It ignites within us the ascribing of glory to God. This week and in the many weeks to come, as we finish out this this book of Romans, we're going to see that the gospel produces a lot more than that. It, It goes further. What, what the gratitude, the awakening within our souls uh, ignites is more than just worship. It produces some things in our lives, specifically obedience, holiness, and service to the kingdom of God. That is what is going to be preached throughout the, these remaining chapters. So if you look ahead just a little bit, we're, we're just entering this section. So let me kind of show you just a brief overview of what is coming in the weeks ahead. Chapter 12 turns um, uh, entirely practical application from the gospel. Here's what it produces. And if you read down through it, it really is just like a machine gun rattling off one instruction after another, one command after another. Uh, be fervent in spirit. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Practice hospitality. I mean, just one phrase after another that is saying here are practical ways to live obedience and service to God. When we come to chapter 13, you notice the first part there addresses how we are to relate to earthly authorities. So very practical application. The latter part uh, gets into more of uh, the call to love and good deeds and exhorting us. Chapter 14 then begins to instruct us in matters of conscience, in those matters of life where there are all those areas and they're just not clear It's not black and white of of whether this honors God or doesn't. And we have to navigate through discernment. There are principles given to guide us in that. In chapter 15, uh, Paul turns a bit more personal and addresses those first hearers. But as he does that, there's a lot of instruction concerning how the, the call of the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, to all the tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. So there's plenty of instruction. Chapter 16, then comes the goodbyes um, and the greeting of a whole lot of different people. And there's instruction along the way as we see it. But kind of the theme that you see there now is practical application of here is how we live. How then should we live in light of the gospel? That's what the rest of this book is about. What remains follows a pattern that we've pointed out numerous times. Grace, then obedience. 
That's the pattern of, that's the pattern of how this works. That's the pattern of, of, of grace. First comes the gospel. First comes the issue of you must be made right with God and Jesus is the way. Come and receive forgiveness. Come and have your sins for your sins atoned. Come and be made right with God. Receive eternal life. Okay. Now out of gratitude. Now as the response, obey God. That pattern, that chronology is important. If you mix it up, you get the gospel wrong. It doesn't go do good works, be good, and then you'll get saved. No, it's first salvation through the grace of God. Now as response comes the good deeds. This is all through the letters of the New Testament. This pattern matters. Grace, then obedience. And so where we begin in considering the many ways that the, the gospel compels us to action it really is with the ultimate. It's, it's with the greatest act of obedience you will ever give to God. It is the greatest worship that you will ever offer up to God. It is offering your very self to him as an act of worship. The way that Chapter 12 breaks up. I, I, th I think this is the, the, the division that Paul had in his mind whenever he gave this. I see it breaking into three parts. First is how we are to relate to God in verses one and two. Next section, how we are to relate to fellow believers in verses three to 13. And then how we are to relate to those outside of Christ in verses 14 to 21. This kind of thinking continues, I think, into chapter 13, how we are to relate to earthly authority. So you can kind of see this is, this is the divisions that, that Paul has in his mind, I believe. And so we are starting then with the first two verses, how we are to relate to God. And in this, I, I see six truths we need to consider uh, today, the goal is just to make it through the first uh, two of those. So letters A and B, and I'll tell you what they are as we go. So we begin with how we are to relate to God, letter A, by the mercies of God. If you look back to verse one, he starts with, therefore, therefore. Now, when you're learning to study the Bible, somewhere along the lines, you probably have a Sunday school teacher or a preacher or something tell you, that when you're reading the Bible and you encounter the word, therefore, you're supposed to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore, kind of a cutesy little way to help you pay attention to something in the text. Okay. But what it, what it, the reason why you're told to do that is because th there's a literary device that's being used here. There's a, there's a function that the therefore serves. What it is saying is that what has come before is now being applied or if there's an argument being built, then there's a conclusion that's coming. What has come before, we're, we're being shown the consequence of what comes from it. And in this case, it is one of, if not the most significant therefores in all of the Bible. So if you were taught that principle, this might be the very passage that whoever taught you that brought you to, to show you uh, this in practice. This is one of the most significant therefores in all of scripture. So when it says it, what, what is being referred to as the before? Well, the answer is it's not just 
the previous verse or even paragraph. In this case, the therefore is referring to everything that has been said since chapter one, verse 16, where the argument began, the explanation of the gospel began. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. And then there's been this 11 chapter explanation of the gospel. The therefore now is saying in light of all of that, in light of the mercies of God, now comes the next. And so what it is, is considering the gospel, considering this incomprehensible mercy of God, it's supposed to do something in our souls. It is meant to awaken, we talked last week, worship. It's meant to awaken gratitude. Gratitude is a motivating affection. It is a compelling inspiration that then drives us to, to act on it. Okay. When you feel gratitude within you, there's, there's this pushing within you to want to show your gratitude, to want to express it, to want to verbalize, to want to uh, demonstrate it in some way. In second Corinthians five fourteen, it says the love of Christ controls us or the love of Christ compels us. And what it means is, it's considering Christ's love for us, it urges, it stirs us to, to, to a certain kind of action, a certain kind of lifestyle. And so what does it produce? What does it compel within us? Well, I've already mentioned it. Last week we looked at worship, direct worship, ascribe glory to God, say the words, sing the hymn, Make the statement, glory be to God. But this passage is now continuing to show us what gratitude for the mercies of God is supposed to produce. And the answers additionally are obedience, holiness of life, and serving his glory by serving his kingdom. So, so Christian, I mean, here's an overview of your life. Worship obey, be holy, serve his glory. I mean, like write that on the doorpost of your home, M make that list known, like put it on a t-shirt. Okay. This is the banner that flies over our life. The banner that flies over our life is the gospel and the gospel produces things in our life as it drives us. And, and, and what's beautiful about it is not merely from a sense of obligation. There's obligation, but it goes beyond just obligation to inspiring us to want to worship, obey, be holy and serve God's glory. Francis Schaeffer famously uh, uh, asked, how then should we live? And that's what the spirit is preaching here um, in, in this passage, in these chapters to come. So if you continue reading in verse one, therefore, and then he says, I urge you, brethren, the term brethren, 
Um, it's a common one in the New Testament. It, it's making clear that he's speaking to believers here. This is generically used for men and women who are in Christ, justified Christians, are adopted into the same family. So we become brothers and sisters in Christ. It is important as you read the Bible that you know who the audience of each passage is for. So if you have never turned to Christ, trusting in him, knowing that you must be saved from the hell that you deserve, saved from the consequence of your sins, forgiven and given eternal life. If you've never turned to him, then you need to know that a lot of the passages of the Bible are not addressed to you. Okay. The invitation is given for you to come and enter them, but they're not yours until you are united to Christ by receiving Jesus by faith. If you are in Christ, then you are a part of this brethren. And this is addressing the people of God. It's addressing the church. So brethren, and notice that he says there, I urge you, I urge you. Now notice as he says that, he's doing more than just commanding us. Now he does that often. Paul, as an apostle, he gives commands. I mean, even in chapter 12, there's a lot of commands that are here. Um, he's an apostle. He was given authority by Christ to give commands to the church. He was given authority by Christ to write scripture. This is an authority that does not exist today. Okay. I don't have it. Nobody else in the world has this kind of authority today that the apostles had. This is a special thing for a brief season. He has authority to do this, but you notice that as he begins here, he doesn't just come right out of the gates and say, I command you to do what he's about to say here. Notice, notice the tone that's here and it's a powerful kind of thing that is happening. He says, I urge you, Paul, as the apostle, he's, he pleads, he pleads, he exhorts. Paul, the sheep in Christ's flock, pleads with other sheep. Paul, the sinner saved by grace, pleads with other sinners saved by grace. It, it has a bit of that kind of passionate um, a plea of let's obey him. I urge you, brethren, I urge you, brothers. And then by the mercies of God. So what does he mean when he says, I, I urge you by the mercies of God? Well, I, I mentioned a moment ago, the thought process here. The thought process here is as you consider the incomprehensible riches of God's mercy. As you are overwhelmed by the grace that God has given to us and what that does to your soul, that's what he's appealing to then to uh, uh, make the plea for us to obey. Out of gratitude, <coughs> work, <coughs> do, take risk, sacrifice, sweat, labor, pray, love, etc. by the mercies of God. So, so with that in mind, let me give some application here as it pertains to our, our gratitude. Christian, if you are going to serve, if you are going to obey, if you are going to live unto God with earnestness and do it for the long haul, you are going to have to keep your gratitude fires burning. 
You know, we've used that illustration before. You may think of your, your worship like a fire, your joy, your gratitude, etc., like a fire. And a fire has to be kept. It has to be tended. There are times where our worship, our joy, our gratitude, it, it's burning hot. It, it's, a, it's a raging bonfire. And then there are other times, sadly, that it's like little coals that are barely there. And we have to tenderly add some straw and fan it back into flame. But Christian, if we are going to live in a way where we live with earnestness, well, we're not, you know, we're not just eking along, but we're living with fervency for the glory of God. We have to keep those gratitude fires going. And that is not easy. Christian, if you do nothing, if you just always sort of expect like the church is supposed to do this for you. Like it's the preacher's job to get me stirred up every week. If you just sit passively and expect it to happen to you, your Christian life is going to be a haphazard roller coaster. Because we all have times where gratitude, it stirs up spontaneously. We love that. It stirs spontaneously at times. We all have seasons where it's a whole month and we're rolling, we're walking with Christ, it's going well. But if you do nothing, if you are passive, then your Christian life is gonna continually be riding this roller coaster of times where there's desire and times where there is not. Now, at the, at the front end of this statement, me talking about this, let's acknowledge the utter ridiculousness of that, that is ridiculous, okay? Christian, we have been saved from hell. We have been saved from a torment. There is no nightmare you have ever had. There is no horror movie that can communicate the pain and the hopelessness of the fate that you and I were once heading to but your savior went to the cross. Your savior gave his body to be butchered. He spilt his blood into the dirt. And by his work, you who are in Christ, we now have a hope. We have a future. There is a kingdom that God has prepared for you. A kingdom of joy and glory. And it's for eternal life. This is your future. Okay, Jesus has done that. And I have days that my coffee's lukewarm and so I struggle with gratitude. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous, okay? But you know, I'm not, you're ridiculous. I, I'm ridiculous, okay? Th this is the issue. Let's acknowledge the ridiculousness of it. Wh wh why are we mediocre in this? Like wh what should the Christian be like on a daily basis? How should the Christian wake up in the morning, skipping down the hall, singing how great thou art, eating my breakfast while rejoicing. It's, oh, I can't believe I'm gonna be saved. Like what should be the attitude of the Christian? Okay, but we're not like that. We're cranky and grumpy. And I didn't get enough sleep this week. And it's just like, we, we are ridiculous, okay? But, but, okay, but here's part of the point I'm trying to make. We are ridiculous in this. How, how deep must the corruption be 
that we struggle with gratitude when Jesus has done what he's done, okay? But recognizing that it's ridiculous doesn't change it, okay? So we, we can sit here and say it's ridiculous, but now we're not all gonna go live different, okay? We have to, it's a helpful starting place recognizing that it's ridiculous, but now there's something that has to be done, okay? This is the body you have for now, okay? Thank God not forever, Okay, but this is the body that you and I have right now. This is the thinking that you and I have right now. We're ridiculous, okay? But we have to work with that ridiculousness. This is the sin nature. We have to try to work with this in order to try to live unto God and then comes glory. So I'm glad that this, this condition isn't gonna be there forever. We have to do something so that we live in a way that we're filled with gratitude, not grumpiness, uh, thankfulness, not entitlement, satisfied, not constantly coveting, never happy because I never have enough. There's something that needs to happen in our soul. So that takes effort. Let me mention three things uh, that we need to do in order to keep the mercies of God fresh in our hearts so that we live with gratitude. This is not an exhaustive list, but this is quickly three pieces of application. Number one, decide resolve that you're going to live with gratitude. Resolve. See the truth that it is ridiculous that we struggle with gratitude and we have a spoiled sin nature. And decide, resolve in your heart, I, I'm not going to let myself pity myself. I'm not going to just let myself live in depressed darkness. I'm not just gonna let myself uh, be uh, selfish, narcissistic, and ungrateful, okay? Now, if this is the only one of these that you do, then you won't make it. Because two months from now, you're gonna forget this, and you're gonna feel differently. But we do have to begin with this. There does have to be a recognition that lack of gratitude is not okay. It's not the life of joy that God calls us to. So there does have to be a meaningful time of resolve in our hearts where we say, I'm making a change now. I'm going to live with gratitude. Okay, but now more of the work to implement. Secondly, consistently remember the mercies of God. Consistently rem remember the mercies of God. And specifically how I am encouraging this is implement the strategy, the discipline of regular worship. Regular worship and in worship, part of what we are doing in worship is we are reflecting on the mercies of God. Numerous times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses preached to the people, remember the Lord your God, remember his might, remember his salvation, remember his care for you. Throughout the Psalms, we are called people of God, remember the works of what the Lord has done. Christian, do not let yourself forget the gospel and the great mercies that God has given. The gospel must never become something that drifts to the back of our minds. We are always to be keeping it fresh at the forefront. It needs to always be a subject of reflection again and again. We keep it near the front, always remembering the mercies of God. How you do that? By regular um, worship, worship corporately, that's together, okay? Corporate from uh, Greek word for body, okay? Worship as a body, worship corporately and don't miss, and don't miss. Worship as a family, 
Worship privately. Okay? All three of those we are commanded in Scripture to do. Worship together. Worship as a family. Worship privately. And as you worship privately, reading the word and singing hymns and reflecting on Scripture, remember the mercies of God. Now, to say just a just to touch more about, I mentioned a bit ago to implement the discipline of daily worship. The whole point about discipline and its definition and why it is necessary is that we're not always motivated. Okay. So when you're greatly stirred by something, you're highly motivated and you go do it. That's good, but it's not discipline. Okay. You watch Rocky four and then go work out. That's great. It's not discipline, okay? Because, you know, the music pumps you up and you just want to go work out. Okay, that's great. Not discipline. Discipline is when I don't really feel like it and I go work out because, this is, this is big, okay? This is big. This is kind of a secret of the Christian life. One of those, in a moment of inspiration, you decide some things. In a moment of inspiration, okay? And now applying it to worship, when you are stirred by gratitude, when you have one of those times of worship and you, there's that fire inside of you that wants to glorify God, that's the moment you decide some things. That's the moment you get out your phone and punch in the alarm on your calendar that wakes you up 30 minutes before what you've been waking up. You don't wait till the next morning to see how I feel. That doesn't go well, okay? In the moment of gratitude, that's when you decide to do things. I'm going to start Okay? And then whatever your next step is, that's implementing the discipline. And part of what we are saying is, is that it is the regular work of reflecting on the scriptures. The work of worship produces things in you. We worship out of gratitude, but watch this. Worship also produces gratitude. Worship feeds us and sustains the gratitude. Christian, you have to keep the fires of gratitude burning in order to live in light of the mercies of God. And here's the third one. It's very similar. Pray, okay, as part of your private worship, pray. But what I am getting at specifically is that um, ask God for gratitude. Um, I've mentioned before that one of the biggest ways we get prayer wrong is just by not doing it. And then maybe the second biggest way we get prayer wrong is that we ask for the wrong things or we don't ask for the right things. We, we oftentimes um, miss the point that when we're reading the word and we encounter some virtue, something that we're supposed to have, write it on your list. Okay, write it on your list and pray for it regularly. Ask God to give you gratitude and ask that regularly, okay? Like this is, again, this is part of the secret of the Christian life. Things like that sometimes seem so simple that we don't do them, okay? But it really is the simple things that are the most important. Ask God for your worship to be stirred, your soul to have affection for him, for you to be thankful within you. In Psalm 51, uh, David, return to the Lord in repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. And he teaches us how to repent and the spirit led him to model some things of how to pray. And in Psalm 51, this very thought process that's here in Romans 12 is also there in Psalm 51. David prays, okay? He's coming out of uh, 
a hardened heart, times when he was cold against God. He says that in Psalm 32, I was dead inside. Okay, so he's coming out of that and he prays and he asks for several things that are significant. First, he prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That sounds an awful lot like, okay, the mercies of God being stirred afresh within us. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then he prays, renew a steadfast spirit within me. What is that getting at? Okay, similar to, he says, sustain me. He's asking God, sustain me with a willing spirit. He's praying that out of my joy of salvation, a desire to obey, a desire to live unto you, O God, would be sustained within me, that I wouldn't be on that roller coaster, but that God would give me a steadfast spirit. And then he, something he says right after that, so restore to me the joy of your salvation, sustain me with a willing spirit, um, give me a steadfast desire, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Do, do you see the effect then? Then I'll evangelize, I'll obey. When the joy of my salvation is stirring, when gratitude is stirring, it will produce this. That's the thought process that is here. And, and Christian, the longer you walk with Christ, I mean, don't you see the more we need these kinds of requests? Pray those exact same things that David taught us to pray. Ask God to restore the joy of your salvation. Ask God to sustain you with a willing spirit. It's ridiculous that we need to ask it, but it is reality. We need to ask it, because listen to me, anybody can be passionate about Jesus for a short sprint. And that includes unconverted church attenders. Anybody can get on fire for a little brief period of time. Who's still marching decades in? Who's still living with a steady, sustained spirit that is living unto God after decades? That's the real test. And so Christian, we want to avoid the big roller coasters of living earnestly, but then I don't feel like it, not until a hymn moves me again or something. No, we want to live with a consistent earnestness and that comes by reflecting on the mercies of God and keeping them fresh within me. So therefore I urge you brethren, by the mercies of God. Here's letter B, the second truth to consider. Offer yourself. He says to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. When he says there to present, the idea there is that of presenting an offering, presenting a sacrifice in worship. Now, like a lot of things, you, you can trace a theme through the Bible and see the way that it's introduced and every major doctrine of the Bible is introduced in the book of Genesis. Okay, it's crazy brilliant. Introduced, and then we see it built upon and taught throughout the rest of Scripture coming to its fulfillment in the New Testament. So, back in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel presented offerings unto God. Throughout Genesis, we see the patriarchs build altars and offer sacrifices unto God. 
when the law was given, a big installment came. When the law was given, Israel was shown a way of life, a way of life where the nation as a whole worshiped God by presenting offerings on a daily basis. There's a principle every day, every single day, morning and evening, uh, an offering was presented unto God. An offering was burned up to God. There is, there is a principle there every day, morning and evening, start of the day, end of the day, worship unto God throughout the year, three feasts. Uh, occurred where people would travel to Jerusalem. They would bring their offerings throughout the year. People would make special trips in order to bring offerings for various reasons, making offerings, presenting them, uh, burning up offerings is all over the Old Testament. And then here's kind of a big point. This is now shown to us in the new covenant that this is a part of how we live unto God. It's kind of a big deal. Presenting offerings is still an integral part of worship in the new covenant. I want to spend a little bit of time with that. I want to do a little bit of background here. On Wednesday nights, we've been doing a study through the law at Sinai, the, the law of Moses. And specifically, we've been working through some of the difficult parts. But one of the reasons why I wanted to do the series was to help show some of the many ways that the law, the law of the Old Testament, still preaches to the Christian in the new covenant. This whole issue with the law, it's complex. It's not easy. We are no longer under the law in the way that Old Testament believers were. There is a way that the law has changed in how we relate to it. But sometimes people misunderstand and think the law's dead, it's gone, it's no more, it no longer instructs us. But over and over again, the New Testament shows us, it, it gives us a, an understanding of how to interpret, how to read the law of Moses. And we see that every single command, every single verse of the law still preaches it informs the Christian in the law of Christ, and there is a way that it is applied. To, to, to speak on that a little bit, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So how did he fulfill the law? Well, there, there are two big ways. The first is he kept the whole law, and he kept it on our behalf, and in justification, his law keeping is counted as ours. And so the law has been fulfilled in that way. But there's another way as well. Jesus fulfilled the law in that uh, every command has a greater way that it is now applied in the new covenant law of Christ. So here's a couple of examples. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we still keep the Passover. But here's how we keep it. We keep the Passover by removing the leaven of sin from within ourselves. So do you remember that part of the Old Testament Passover? Okay, they removed all the leaven out of their households. Okay, it's one of the ways they recognize this. God used that as an illustration to preach greater things, eternal things, deeper things, to, to speak to the removing of the leaven of sin from our lives. So Christian, a new covenant command is, you are to keep the Passover but you're not to do it by simply having a feast once a year. 
You are to keep the Passover. You are to keep the spirit of the law. You are to keep the fulfilled application of that. Remove the leaven of sin from within you. Okay. The original function was a picture, a shadow preaching greater things, preaching deeper things. Next, um, in the Old Testament, you remember that command to abstain from the unclean animals. The basic principle of that command still applies to the new covenant Christian. Christian, do not touch, do not handle that which defiles you. Okay. And do you see how we were given a visual kind of illustration, something very tangible with the animals? It was never really about the animals. It was never about the pigs. It was never about the bacon. Okay. The issue was a tangible illustration to give us something to understand for us. Don't touch, don't handle, don't take into your life something that defiles you. You can go through the entirety of the law and over and over again, the, the weird things that we find, like don't mix the fabrics together. There are truths preach that have a greater application in the new covenant. All right. So we've established that principle. Now here's the next step. When the law preaches on presenting offerings, this is also preaching to the Christian in the new covenant. We are given a dozen, maybe 20 principles concerning how to present offerings in worship. So for instance, God said, when you come, do not appear before me empty handed. Okay, so that's a command God said, when you come to the tabernacle, you come to the temple, you're not to come empty handed. You are to bring an offering. Okay, so what's, what's the principle? Well, first, Worship is an obligation, okay? Worship is a command. But then when you come to worship, here's the principle. There is no worship if there is no offering. And offering is necessary. It is how we demonstrate that we regard God as worthy. That's why the word sacrifice has the meaning that it does. It costs you something. And what you give demonstrates that you count God as worthy. There was a time that David needed to offer up something. And uh, somebody offered uh, to give David for free what David needed to offer. And David said, I will not offer unto God that which cost me nothing. You see the principle there, okay? It, it wouldn't really count if it cost him nothing. There is no worship if there is no offering. Now, by the way, that's not the preacher's underhanded way to try to manipulate you into giving more into the offering plate, okay? Um, sure, the Bible teaches, give. But we're going to see the offerings that we're talking about go much deeper than that. And I will tell you, there are bigger things that God tells you to offer. Uh, next, we're taught in the law, do not step through that gate to present an offering unless you are ceremonially clean. New Testament application, uh, do not draw near to offer worship to God unless you are cleansed by the blood of Christ. The New Testament tells us it is impossible 
to please God. It is impossible to offer up a worship that he regards, that he accepts apart from faith in the Lord Jesus, apart from being cleansed. Next, when you present your offerings, you are to do so with unleavened flour or unleavened bread. If you read Leviticus, this comes up over and over again. When you bring it, there is to be unleavened flour that's offered with it. New Testament application. As a Christian, ceremonially cleansed by the blood of Christ, we, we are to offer up our worship with sin removed from us. We are to come and approach God with clean hands, a purified heart. We have put sin away as we draw near. Next, um, you offer up to God what he says, not what you think he should be happy with. That's a big one. That's a big one. Next, you offer to God the first of your increase, not your last and not even your second. Next, offer to God your best. In Malachi, God chastised the people severely because they were bringing their lame and sick lambs and were giving that as their offering. God said, won't you give that to your governors and see if they would accept them? You offer to God your best. So do you see how all of these principles have new covenant application? Presenting offerings is still how we worship. It is an integral part of worship. Now let me show you some of this more in the New Testament. Hebrews 13, 15. If you want to turn there, you can. You might jot it in the margins of your Bible outside of this. Hebrews 13, 15. Here's what it says. Through him then, that's Jesus, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. All right, so you see there, presenting sacrifices, still a part of worship. And what is the sacrifice that through Jesus, we offer up there in verse 15, praises from your lips. Praises from your lips. Sing the hymn. Say the words. Say the amen as someone is praying. As we are reading the scriptures. Okay, so this call to participate in worship, similar to last week. When somebody is reading the passage, say, even if it's just muttering to yourself, yes, Lord. Okay, agree with the one who is praying. Agree with the text. Sing the hymn, say the words, ascribe glory to God, bring praises from your lips. It is a sacrifice. You get the point. But then Hebrews 13, look at the very next verse, verse 16. And do not neglect doing good for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So what's the next sacrifice we offer? Good works. So if this is new to you, this is kind of a, this is a big principle. It's like a big light bulb moment, okay? Those principles from the old covenant apply now. The presenting of offerings to God is still a part of new covenant worship. In Romans 12, now let me bring us back to the text. In Romans 12, you're told to present to God an offering, but it is a costly one. In Romans 12, we are being urged to offer unto God the costliest offering you can ever give. You are to offer yourself. Yourself. The altar is made. The wood is laid. 
the fire is ready. Where is the offering? It's you. It's you. What Romans 12 is calling us to do is to, in a conscious, conscious way, give ourselves to God so that we lay ourselves before him, submit to him in a way that is complete, in a way that in our hearts we are regarding and we are saying to God, all that I have, all that I am, it's yours. My time, my marriage, my home, my possessions, my work, my rest, my hobbies, my everything. They're yours, God. I'm yours. Take me. Use me. Send me where you want. I'll do what you want. I'm yours. It is the laying down of ourselves in complete surrender. You are to present your body, your very self as a sacrifice. Now you notice that in this case, it's, it's an abnormal sacrifice because what does he say? It's a living sacrifice. So what, what does that mean? We're talking about something that is as your way of life. It is surrender as a way of life. It's daily. So in other words, friends, Jesus calls you to more than one moment of submission. He calls you to a life of submission and eternity of submission. Sometimes when you hear people explain the gospel, one of the parts that they misunderstand about the gospel is they'll say something like, you know, all that God wants from us is just to believe. All that God wants from us is just to say that prayer. Well, if somebody says that, no, there's a misunderstanding. Because true faith is to come to Jesus as Lord and all that that means as Lord. And we say, I, I, I trust, I believe, I entrust myself to you. It, it's to live this. It's to live in submission to God. Now, ironically, this means exactly the same thing as when Jesus said, Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, don't ever forget the daily, and come follow me. Now, how can it mean the exact same thing? Because think of the difference in the metaphor there. Jesus said, I want you to take up your cross. A cross is for death. And that is the imagery there. It is to die. And Romans 12 says that we are to make ourselves a living sacrifice. So how, how, do, they, how do they mean the same thing? They're both poetic. They're both poetically saying the same truth with the end conclusion. There's a contrast that's giving, okay? Jesus said, take up your cross, die, do it daily, live. Romans 12, be a living, live, sacrifice, die, life and death, life and death. It's the same conclusion. It's the same call, the same instruction. It's just two different poetic ways of saying it. What it means when Jesus calls you to take up your cross daily is it is a call to die, but die every single day. 
die daily is biblical language. Paul said it later in the New Testament. It's first or second Corinthians. I can't remember which one. Die daily. What does that mean? To die to self, to die to flesh. Every desire that I have that does not honor God, we are to die to. Every practice that does not honor God, we are to die to. Every way of speaking that does not honor Christ, we are to die to. Every lust, every sexual urge that does not honor Christ, we die to it. That's what it means to deny yourself. Every life ambition that is not centered on the glory of God, we die to it. And we do it daily. The living as a sacrifice is preaching the same thing. Surrender to him and we live as a sacrifice. Presenting yourself on the altar means you give yourself to God with no clauses and no small print at the bottom of the page. It's no, well, God, I'll do this, but I'm holding back in this area. No, it's complete. It's complete. It means that you say to God, I am yours, do with me whatever you desire. Now, it means that we regard ourselves in this way, but it might very well mean that you consciously and actually say this to God. Maybe in a time of serious and significant prayer, you say to God what Isaiah said, here I am. When, when he said that, he, he meant more than just physically, okay? He meant, I'm yours. Here I am. Send me. It is a laying down of self. I remember being a new Christian, and I heard some real good sermons on this when I was a new Christian. But I remember one of the time the preacher saying that this is the scariest thing you'll ever say to God. I'm yours. Do whatever you want. And I remember thinking, well, that's not hard. <laughs> I'll do that right now. God, I'm yours. Do whatever you want. <laughs> and then here's what happened. God started to do whatever he wanted. I started to humble. God started to break my pride. God started to do some things that were painful. You, you, you Christian who have gone through times of difficulty and affliction, you know that there is hurt that can count, come that shakes you to your core. And there's actually a negative kind of way that as we get older, we can become more afraid of saying, God, do whatever you want. But understand what I'm saying to you. I, I didn't say those things to try to discourage you from it. I urge you, brethren, I plead with you by the mercies of God, lay yourself down. There is a richness. There is a fullness there is a communion with God, a knowledge of God that you can have that you never know exist until you give yourself to him in this kind of way. Offer yourself unto God, say it, pray it, verbalize it. God, I'm yours. Send me where you want. Do with me what you will. Show me what you want. Tell me what to get rid of. I'll get rid of it. Show me what you want and I'll do it. You, you pray that kind of thing and you don't know what God will do. It might be that you live in the same house and have no more difficulties than the next Christian. 
it also could be that there's great hardship that will come. You don't know, but you trust him. You trust him. You say to him, I will do what you want. Help me to know it and help me to see it. And you trust that when God calls you to do something, he also helps you with your desires for that thing. Trust him that he is working for your good. So Christian, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy unto God, lay yourself down. And if you have never turned to Christ to be saved, you need to know that God tells you in his word that you must be, that if you are not right with him, if you have not had your sins forgiven, that you are facing an eternity in hell. That's not a joke and he's not mean by doing it. It is the justice that we deserve from our sins, but he offers you eternal life. He invites you, come and have eternal life, but you don't get it if you disagree with him and say, I'm not going to. Come trust in Christ. Come believe on him as Lord and Savior, Messiah, King. Believe in him and that you must be saved and cry out to him and ask him that he will. Pray to him. Tell him you believe. And God says that you will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and worship you. And God, we... Anyone who wants to join me in saying this, God, we do express to you. We want to lay ourselves down. We very seriously want to say, send us where you want us to go. Lead us into what you want us to do. Cause us to remove from our lives that which displeases you. Whatever sin we've been holding on to, we, we want to let go of it. We want to die to it, deny it. Whatever command we've not yet begun to obey, we want to begin. When it comes to our calling, our ministry, our service, whatever you want us to do, God, lead us into it, no matter how hard. But please give us the grace to see it and the grace to want it, oh God. Please bless us. As we're about to leave, we ask that you will be with us as we go. Bless our time of fellowship. Bless us as we dismiss. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll give a couple. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.